0: That's strange. All right. We have some tough stuff today. Uh, This is no joke here in James chapter 2. This is some hard work. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to brace ourselves for the Word of God. Father God, thank you that you speak to us, and you uh, speak to us with uh, conviction, Lord, and with hard truth. And I pray as we hear from your Word today that we would be people who do not uh, defend ourselves or deflect the truth on someone else but can hear it for ourselves and let it change us and grow us and shape us to be people who are more and more like Jesus every day. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, So it was my first day at work. I was working at TGI Fridays. And Liz and I had gotten jobs there to pay our way through grad school. And I had this training day where I was going to be a food runner. How many of you guys have worked in the food business at some point? Waiters, waitresses, busboys, hostesses, right? I was a food runner, and so you take the food from the kitchen, you bring it where it's supposed to go, pretty straightforward. This was like my ninth year in the restaurant business at that point. Thought I could handle it. As the day progresses, no problems, you bring the food, servers are usually pretty happy, and then an order comes up to the bar. How many of you guys have been to a TGI Fridays before? Right? TGI Fridays has that big three-sided bar, and so the bar's packed with people, okay? Packed with people, and the table's next to it, packed with people, Me walking through a crowd with food is not great, okay? I mean, it's good for me. It's not good for the crowd, okay? And so instead of coming around the outside, I think I'm going to walk behind the bar and drop off the food. And so I start walking behind the bar. I'm doing them a favor with my potato skins. And I walk in, and this guy who I've got maybe three inches of height and 150 pounds on puts his hand in the middle of my chest like this. And he goes, stop right there. No servers behind the bar. Only bartenders behind the bar. And I'm like, really? Oh, OK. All right, little man. All right. And I was like, you want to do this? Like my eyes. You want to do this? And this little guy, straight in my eyes, yeah, I'll go, new guy. I'll go. And that's how I met Frank Slavnik. <laughs> that is his true story. Many of you know Frank. He's married to Nikki Slavnik, our children's director. He and I have been friends for 25 years. I officiated his wedding, right? We've been through thick and thin together. And he still thinks he can take me to this day, right? (laughs) What was Frank doing? He was showing me the way of things. At Fridays, the bartenders don't just stand there. Back in those days, it was when they used to do like the flipping of the glasses and behind the back and they're juggling stuff. You can't have me walking behind there. I'm going to smash everything like a bull in a china shop. And so the rule was you couldn't go back behind there. He had to teach me sort of the way of things, how things go. And and that's that's the thing, right? In every new situation, we need to be taught the way. Whether it's a job or in a family or in a school. And some of the new way is going to be different than the old way or the way that, you used to, that you've used been used to. And this week, we're continuing our series in the book of James. And James is writing to what we call the diaspora. Those are believers who were scattered or dispersed, that's where we get diaspora from, by persecution. They were all happy in Jerusalem, and then here comes persecution, and now they have, they've split off into all these countries, and they're, they're starting or living in new faith communities all over the world. And as James writes them, he gives them practical instruction on how to live, what the way of the church is, which is very different from the way of the world around them. So today we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, and James calls the believers out to something that is the Christian way, that is in direct opposition to the way of the world, and it is going to ruffle our feathers. I guarantee you it's going to ruffle our feathers today. Here's James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what he says to the church. He goes, here's how you're going to live differently as the church than as the world lives. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, the way of the Christ follower is to not show favoritism, especially material favoritism. Christians are not supposed to differentiate people based on economics. And he gives us a for instance. He says, you're at your church gathering. It's probably in someone's house back in the day. And two guys walk in. One's dressed nice and clearly has money. The other is poor and clearly does not. He says, if you make the rich guy feel important and comfortable, but you tell the poor guy, hey, sit on the ground. Can you imagine having someone come over to your house and you tell them, hey, you know what? I don't have a chair for you. Just sit on the ground, right? Have you ever seen the floor in my kitchen, right? So sit on the ground, right? He says, when you do that, when you treat the rich guy one way and the poor guy the other, you become judges with evil thoughts. What does that mean, to be a judge with evil thoughts? He says, we speak a value system with our actions. And here's the the world's value system says that money equates to better treatment. Money equates to respect. That we make assumptions about people based on what they have and how they look. Our world ties together character and value. And James says that this is an evil thought. That those things do not always go together. And that thinking they do in the church isn't just foolish, but evil. His words, not mine. Look, we all get fooled by appearances, right? I've coached enough years of baseball and basketball to know that sometimes the kid who looks like a star is a slouch, and that the short kid with the weird eyebrow is a killer. And I have been fooled in ministry a number of times. Uh, A number of years ago, I met with a a young couple who was uh, uh, wanting to plant a church, and I was on the team that was evaluating them for church planting. And I got to tell you, they looked the part. They were good-looking people. He was tall and attractive, and he sounded good when he was talking. Man, he had a great turn of phrase. He was really charismatic, right? And you're like, man, these people are dynamic. And then I, I looked at some of the things in their background, and there, was, there were some questions, but I was like, ah, look at them. They just look like church planters. And so we were a young church, maybe a year or two old. Some of you may remember this. And they came out to our church, and we took up an offering for them. We were broke, and we're like, look, this what we're gonna give to this work. Because I thought, man, they, they look like they're gonna be a success. And what happened? The character wasn't there. The outside had fooled me. Do you know who actually succeeds in uh, in church work or in sports or in school? It's not the gifted, although that can help. It's the grinder, it's the faithful. It's the hard worker. It's the young guy or gal who puts in the work. You know, I've learned that lesson here at New Hope. You know who some of our best workers are here at New Hope? Moms with little kids. I think about three moms with little kids who are on our staff. Katie Ringer, Nikki Slavnik, Amy Newsom. You know what they are? They're grinders, faithful, hard workers. People tell you when you're in ministry, don't hire moms of little kids because their job is going to be really secondary to them. That's a lie. Those are three of our most effective staff members. And I'll give credit to my wife. She's the OG, right? Our kids are big now, but still. But you get the point, right? Appearances are often deceiving. And when we do it in the church, when we judge based on appearance, especially on economic appearance... We make a serious mistake. We become judges, he says, with evil thoughts. Listen to what he says next, and I tell you, everything James says in this passage is gutsier than I would have than I have the the gumption to say. It's harder words than I have, but I can only read them. Here's what he says. He says, "Listen, my dear brothers and sisters." Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Look, I want to talk about rich and poor. And what I want to say is, hey, rich and poor doesn't matter. It's just equal on every side and let's not show distinctions. James actually says it the other way. He says, look out for people who are poor. The kingdom of God is for them. He says, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. Worldly poverty leads to faith and a greater kingdom inheritance, greater than anything in this world. And I know that this is encouragement, right? Many of James's readers, throw that back up there, right? Many of people who are reading this are poor people. James is writing to the diaspora. They're broke, they don't have anything, and they have no prospects. They, they've gone, this isn't America. Okay, they're moved to a place where they don't have any family, they don't have any land, there's no bootstrapping up, they're going to be poor people for the rest of their lives. And he says, I want to encourage you that the kingdom is for you, that that economic position is going to help you be dependent on me, it's going to develop a faith in you that's going to bless you for eternity. It's going to be harder here, but it's going to be better there this message really isn't for us we all live in a place where we have economic advantage every single one of us but for the millions of believers around the world who live in abject poverty this is a truth they hang on to a blessing that they hold close to their souls James says there's something and I want to remind you because look not everything always goes our way right some of you right now who are in really good financial position some point in your future will not be Anybody in this room ever suffered a big financial reversal? Ever go from rich to poor real quick? Anybody in here? Right? A couple people? I met a guy a few weeks ago who was, he had been a wealthy man his whole life. He'd grown up with money. He'd invested wisely. He'd started a company. He kind of bet on this company. He did very, very well, made millions of dollars, could tell you stories about trips and experiences. He had f- friends with celebrities, all this stuff, right? Right? And then his world came crashing down. He had a medical situation, his marriage fell apart, he got betrayed by a partner, and over the course of about 18 months, he went from wealthy and on top of the world to broken and broke and abandoned, living in a house he couldn't afford with debts he couldn't manage from a lifestyle that he could no longer maintain. We sat down for lunch not too long ago. And as we talk, and he's telling me this, he's telling me about some plan to get back on top. And he said, you know what, though? He goes, it's been kind of cool. I feel like God's really speaking to me right now. And I said, you know what? I know this story because God's been speaking to you all along. But those layers of security that come with money, they make it hard to hear from God sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes when we have everything we need that money can pay for, can fix our problem, sometimes we go there before we go to prayer. Sometimes we insulate ourselves. When we go, I have lack of purpose, oh, I'll get myself tons of expensive distraction. Right? I long for security. Well, I'll, just, I'll get a lot of insurance and I'll build a big house and I'll get accolades from the world. What we're really longing for is God, but money gets in the way of that. That's true. And so James encourages those who are poor. He says, remember the kingdom of heaven is for you. The opposite is true. When we're rich, it can be hard to hear from the Lord. Our comfort and our money, unless we're very intentional, can work against us. It's the reason why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Many people, and I have been among them And I'm sure many of you could say the same. We have sought after money. But James says there's a blessing in poverty, an inheritance greater than a stock fund or real estate portfolio. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's everlasting and untouchable. And this is a base truth that the church is, is called out to operate from. That the kingdom of heaven values character more than it values economics. And here's that. Here's what happened, though. He says that's true. That's always been true. But he goes, You're you're in this new place, you're trying to start these new churches, and you're all poor people. And he goes, But here's what you've done. And now he's going to call them out, and this is going to hit us too. He says, Here's what you've done, verse 6. He says, You have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? You understand what's going on here? The believers are in these new cities and they're setting up churches. And rich and poor alike are coming to the churches. Okay? New church, rich people come, poor people come. But the churches, who are full of these dispersed, broke people who've lost their land and their jobs and their positions, you know what they're doing? They're courting the rich and rejecting the poor. They said, bring in the rich and keep out the poor. Because they want to build churches full of rich people while keeping the poor out. They may put up with the poor in the church, but they don't want them. They dishonor them. Someone comes in your house and you say, sit on the floor. Do they want to come back? Hey, you're you're not valued here. Go stand in the back. Sir, right here. So glad you're here, sir. Good to have you. Thank you so much for being here says they dishonor the poor, they shame them, they get no positions of influence. They're told to sit in the corner while the church bends over backwards to court the rich. And yet James points out that it's the very same rich people, the same ones that they're courting, who are exploiting them. Now, I don't know the details, but probably it's the same people that in this new place they move to who are overcharging them, overtaxing them, and apparently he says suing people. By the way, that's not a Christian practice. Because says the church is apparently allowing or ignoring a lot of non-Jesus-like living by the rich in order to have them and their money in the church. It's a rough accusation, and let's not pretend it's just a problem from years ago. It gets right up in our kitchen as churches in America. And I got to tell you, if you're someone of influence, I guarantee you the church has done you wrong. Here's why. Rich people need to hear hard truth the same way poor people do. And yet, if you're a rich person in a church, often churches will ignore stuff about you to get your check in the box. They'll be nicer to you, ignore your life. They won't, they won't teach hard truth because they're afraid of offending you or losing you and your resources. And it's a shame. And it's a, and it's a disgrace that it gets done to rich people. You, need people. you need a church that's willing to speak hard truth. I need somebody who's willing to speak hard truth to me when I have economic influence over them. He says, yet churches have courted the rich over and over again. The guy who runs our section of the conference, his name is Gary Rohrmeyer. He's spoken here a few times. At the beginning of New Hope, he warned me. He said, Gary, you're going to get tested about money as a church because God wants to know if you're a prophet or a prostitute. Is he right? Absolutely, he is. It is an ongoing test for the church. Will you allow money to buy influence in the church? Is a question that every church faces. Will you treat people differently based on their economics? It's a heart and gut check as a regular practice for not just the church, but also for believers. The world teaches that money buys influence and special privileges. You ever flown on a plane? I'd like the Diamond Elite Jasmine members to come in first, and I'd like you to sit in these larger chairs, right, even though you're a tiny person, and some big dude who could really use that bigger chair is walking right by you, right, we'd like you to sit there first, I'd like you to have a drink before these people get on, okay, sir, yeah, we're going to need you to sit on the wing of the plane, okay, we don't need you in here, right? The world says money buys influence and special privileges, it should not be so in the church. Your elders should not be the richest people. You shouldn't play the music the biggest givers like or follow the politics of those who write the fattest checks. If you do, you're a prostitute. And you no longer serve the kingdom. You are serving the idol of money. And we, as rich and poor come into our church, should welcome and invite and make comfortable everyone who is here to follow Jesus. That is something I am proud of our church for, but it is also a warning to us on how easy it is to let that worldly value that gets preached to us everywhere else come in here, in God's space. It is not only shameful, it is dangerous for us to start valuing money. Let us not pretend that money could bring us through hard circumstances at church. Only the Savior does. Listen to how James put it. Verse 8. It says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So James says that favoritism breaks the law of Jesus. So once Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees, they were trying to trip him up. They said, what's the most important law of the Old Testament? And they thought they were going to catch Jesus short. He was going to say one thing, and they go, nah, uh, uh, you forgot this one. But they forgot that they were talking to Jesus, right? And they said, what's the most important law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Which kind of sums up all the laws. Only Jesus can do that. So they ask him, well, who's my neighbor then, Jesus? We'll catch you yet. And he tells the story of the good Samaritan, the half-breed rejected Samaritan who shows compassion when the Pharisee didn't. He obviously hits home because the Pharisees thought of themselves as super righteous, but everyone else knew they were harsh jerks. And I love the end of that passage in Matthew. It says after he gave them this response that no one dared ask him any more questions. Everybody had to shut up because he roasted them for not living like they said they believed. It is impossible to be a righteous person who is also a jerk. Do you know that? And you're like, but how come you're the pastor then? Okay, fine, that's fair. <laughs> so James says, if you show favoritism that's breaking Je- Jesus' summary of the laws, that that's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Does that make sense? Showing favoritism Breaks the law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Because you would like to get picked, wouldn't you? Not based on your appearance or your economics. You'd like to get picked based on your character on the fact that you're you, right? So if I pick against you or I don't favor you because I don't like how much money you make or how you dress, I'm breaking that law. Agreed? Here's the problem. All of us in this room have shown favoritism, right? And he says, yeah, you've all shown favoritism. And he goes, and you think it's not as bad as adultery or murder, but it is. This is what caught me. Is showing favoritism as bad as committing adultery? Who thinks that you'd rather be known as someone who showed favoritism versus someone who murdered or committed adultery? Who'd rather be known as someone who showed favoritism? Anyone like to be known as an adulterer and a murderer instead? So we're all in agreement. We'd rather show favoritism than be thought of as an adulterer. We're all in agreement. Oh, except for James. Except for the guy writing the book. He disagrees with us. He says those are the same thing. I couldn't even handle that this week. Because I think of myself as righteous. I, I, I haven't committed adultery. I have come close to murdering. But I've never actually murdered anyone. Have I showed favoritism? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Have I treated rich people different than poor people? Yep. Have I given special privileges to people who I think have economic advantage and could help our, yeah, I've done that. It's not like a rule I live by, but have I done it? We all treat rich people differently, don't we? Don't we? We do. And so what do we do when we know we're in sin? We confess our sin. We agree with God. We thank him that we're forgiven by grace. And we ask him to show us how to make it better, how to repent. Look, my temptation is to argue against this. And I started to, look, I know I got the whole week with this passage and you're probably just getting it right now. I had the whole week with this, and I had the work going on me, and, he, and he, man, he's like, Gary, are you going to fight me on this? You want to argue against me? Because I, I put it down on paper for a reason. There's a reason why the Scripture is the Scripture, and the stuff that you say, no one remembers the next week, right? I appreciate that. Maybe two weeks, okay? What did I preach on four weeks ago? Point taken. Okay. So, who, I, I, and I'm not saying you should, okay? Word of God. Right, I'm arguing against the word of God. I'm wrong. <laughs> if the world feels very different than the word of God, who's wrong? The world is wrong. So showing favoritism, he goes, You gotta root that stuff out in the church. It'll be a curse on your church. You know who you end up being? Not the church. Not the church. You become a, a, a club for people to feel good about themselves because they gave to something, maybe? And you do some works for your community, the people that are out there. Hey, we're going to help those people over there. But you don't invite them in. Remember what Jesus did when he came up in the temple and they'd raise all the prices so only rich people could go in? What did he do? He, he knocked down the tables. He got out the whip of cords. you think he was mad? Did he do that to the woman caught in adultery? No. He did it to the people who were showing favorites. Think of his reactions. You're showing favoritism, keeping people away from the house of God? I will whip you. You committed adultery, I'll be like, hey, who has a stone? Hey, we're going to work this out. Right? But boy, favoritism apparently hacks him off quite a bit. He makes room. And what, do you remember what happened at the end of that? When the temple got cleared out, who came in? The poor, the beggars, the broken. And God was like, ah, oh, my people. The people that depend on me. People who need my provision. I've told a story a thousand times before. I'll tell it one more time. We had a girl from Albania living with us one summer. Poorest country in Europe. Grew up in poverty. 95% unemployment. My wife knew her from being a missionary there. She came to live with us for the summer. I thought she'd be so impressed living here. After like two weeks, I said, how do you like it? Her name was Elda. Elda, how do you like it here? She goes, how do you follow God here? You have everything. How can you even hear from him? She was sad for us. She was like, I feel for you. It's terrible. How do you even drive around? It's awful. There's no quiet. There's no place of need and prayer. You your 15 kinds of Twizzlers here. What's a Twizzler, right? <laughs> Nothing against Twizzlers. They're delicious, right? So look, if you're like me and you have to deal with the fact that you've been a favorites player, um, understand that according to the scriptures that you and me, that we are sinners, We're lawbreakers who need to repent and receive forgiveness. That's what I'm going to do in this. Then James gets to some encouragement, some charge for the church. This is verse 12. He says, here's how you should live. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James reminds us that it is the mark of the Christ follower. How do you know if you've received salvation? Because it changes you. It changes you into a person of mercy. Lack of mercy is how you can tell the Pharisees weren't really following God. That they were worshiping their own righteousness. Righteousness. When we've received grace, the law that brings freedom always results in a new us. It always produces fruit. I mean, James is practically quoting Jesus here. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He says, when you've received mercy, you can't help but show mercy. But if you can't forgive other people, if you cannot show favorites, then you have not received salvation. You have not been changed. You have not received grace. You're still living by the world's values. You've just added another piece that makes you feel more righteous. It says mercy triumphs over judgment. We are to be a people who do not show favorites because that's who we are. Because God didn't show favorites in us. He came and rescued each one of us no matter how despicable and terrible we were. And look, if you're a person who has resources and you're you're following God, yes, God gave you those to steward wisely. There's other passages on that. But we as a church, when people come in our door, However they're drastic, those are not people we serve and send away. These are people of the kingdom of God that belong here, wherever you think you fit in the economic scale. And according to this, people who are in poor economic position know a lot more about God than you do if you're rich. They've learned to depend on him in ways that you can't understand. Let us be a people who welcome rich and poor, be thankful that they're coming to want to follow God, and come and meet with them. Let that be true of us, New Hope as a church, and let that be true in your own life. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to have friends from different economic circles so you understand it better. To, to see, not be like, I'm trying to make a poor friend. I'm trying to make a rich right? <laughs> but if you find that you only have friends in one area, hang out some other places. <laughs> make friends across the spectrum, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So here's the thing. Um, I, I think that, look, I, I, like I said, I got all week with this. I want to give you a minute with the Lord on this. And just even ask him, Lord, do I show favoritism? Or maybe a better question is, in what ways am I currently showing favoritism? Because we do. And I want you to just give, give him a minute right now to speak. Just get quiet with me and ask the Holy Spirit if he'd speak to you. Don't think about lunch or whatever's next. Just let the Holy Spirit speak to you about favoritism in your own life. Father God, we are people who have received mercy. We've been shown compassion. We've been rescued by Jesus Christ. Let that be evident in the way that we live. Let us put that into action. Lord, if we've shown favoritism, as we've shown favoritism, let us confess it and repent it and turn from it, that that will not be true in our church. And if it's true, Lord, expose it so that we may deal with it harshly and be a people. Uh, who cling on to dependency on you, who value character and commitment and loyalty to you more than we do economic resource. Let us not be a slave, slaves to money. Let us not be prostitutes, but prophets. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we want to live accordance to, in accordance to your will and your way. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Let God's word uh, seek and, and break you down and, and, and mold your life.